Chapter Two of The Ghost of Gear House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Ghost of Gear House by Charles Willing Beale. Chapter Two. There are few men who would not have felt uncomfortable in the peculiar situation in which Mr. Henley now found himself, although, perhaps, he was as little affected as anyone would have been under the circumstances. It was impossible now to retreat from the part assumed, and he resolved to carry it out to the best of his ability, never doubting for an instant that the deception would be discovered sooner or later. Following Miss Gear across the threshold of her mysterious home, Henley entered a hall which was by far the most extraordinary he had ever beheld, and he paused for a moment to take in the scene. The room was nearly square, with a singular staircase ascending from the left. Upon the side opposite the door was a huge chimney, where a fire of logs was burning in an enormous rough stone fireplace doubly cheering after their long drive through the cool October evening. A brass lamp of antique design, with perforated shade of the same material, was suspended from the ceiling, and helped illumine this strange apartment. From each end of the mantelpiece, an immense high-backed sofa projected into the room, cushioned and padded, and looking as if built into its present position with the house. The walls were covered with odd portraits, whose frames were crumbling in decay, and the window curtains adorned with fairy scenes and mythological figures. The ceiling was crossed with heavy beams of oak, black with the smoke of a century, and the stairway upon the left was also black, but ornamented with a series of rough panels, upon each of which was painted a human face giving it a somewhat fantastic appearance. Paul could not help glancing above toward the mysterious regions with which this eccentric stairway communicated. An antique sofa, studded with brass nails, exhibited upon its towering back a picture of Tsongkapa reclining under the tree of a thousand images at the Lamazeri of Kumbum. There were scenes which were evidently intended to be historical, but there were others which were wild and inexplicable. The quaintness of the room was intensified by the flickering fire and the shafts of yellow light emitted through the perforations of the lamp. A faint aromatic odor hung upon the air, possibly due to a pile of balsam logs in a corner near the chimney. Over all was the unmistakable evidence of age and of a nature at once barbaric, eccentric, and artistic. Who had conceived and executed this extraordinary apartment? And what were the people like who called the place their home? Paul stood aghast and wondered as he inwardly propounded these questions. The girl led the way to the fire, and, seating herself upon one of the sofas described, invited Paul to the opposite place. His bewilderment was intense, and with a lingering gaze at the oddities surrounding him, he accepted the invitation. Not another soul had been seen since he entered. Did the girl live alone? It seemed incredible, and yet where were her people? 
Dorothy pulled off her gloves and warmed her fingers before the cheerful blaze, and then stood eyeing with evident satisfaction the costly gems with which they were loaded. The light seemed to shine directly through her delicate palms, and to fall upon her face and hair and quaint old-fashioned costume with singular effect. There was something so bizarre and yet so spiritual in her appearance that Henley could not help observing in what perfect harmony she seemed with her environment. It was some minutes before either of them spoke. Paul loathed to express his surprise, for fear of betraying a lack of knowledge he might possibly be expected to possess, while Dorothy, in an apparent fit of abstraction, had evidently forgotten her guest and all else, save the cheerful fire before her. Presently she withdrew her eyes from their fixed stare at the flames, and, looking at Paul, said, "'You must be hungry.' There was something so incongruous with his surroundings and recent train of thought in the girl's sudden remark that Henley could not help laughing. "'One would scarcely expect to eat in such a remarkable home as yours, Miss Guerre,' he replied, looking into her earnest eyes and wondering if she ordinarily dined alone. "'Nevertheless, we will in an hour,' she answered, "'and I shall expect you to have an excellent appetite after our long drive.' Paul wanted to ask about the members of her family, but thought it wisest to say nothing for the present. Surely they would appear in due season, for it was impossible the girl could live alone in so large a house, and without natural protection, and so he simply made a further allusion to the apparent age and great picturesqueness of the building. "'Yes,' said Dorothy, again gazing into the fire, "'it is old, considerably more than a hundred years. It was built in the colonial days, when things were rougher and good work more difficult to obtain.' "'But surely these portraits and historical scenes were the work of an artist,' Henley ventured to observe, looking at a strange head of Medusa. "'Yes,' she answered. "'The one you are looking at was done by Ah Ben.' He had been led to believe that Ah Ben was a living member of the household, who would shortly appear, but this now seemed impossible, for these extraordinary pictures were as old as the house itself. What did the girl mean? Had this Ah Ben done them all? Should he ask her and expose his ignorance? Paul thought he would venture upon a compromise. And are these pictures as old as they appear? Quite, answered the girl. As you can see for yourself, the house and all that is in it date from quite a remote time, and many of the portraits were painted before the house was ever begun. That seemed to settle the question. Ah Ben was evidently a deceased ancestor, possibly a friend of the family in the distant past, and Henley concluded that he had misunderstood the girl in her former allusion to the man. Dorothy had not taken off her hat, nor did she seem to have the slightest intention of doing so. Meanwhile, Paul's appetite, which had been temporarily lulled by his novel surroundings, was beginning to assert itself, and as there was no prospect of an attendant to conduct him to his room, 
He was about to ask where he might find a bowl of water to relieve himself of some of the stains of travel. Before he had finished the sentence, however, his attention was arrested by the sound of a distant footstep. He listened. It came nearer and in a minute was descending the black staircase in the corner. Paul watched and saw the figure of an old man as it turned an angle in the stairs. Then it stopped and coughed lightly as if to announce its approach. "'Come!' cried Dorothy. "'It's only Mr. Henley, and I'm sure he'll be glad to see you.' The figure advanced, and when it had descended far enough to be in range with the fire and lamplight, Paul saw a most extraordinary person. The man, although very old, was tall and dignified in appearance, with deep-set, mysterious eyes and flowing white mustache and hair. The top of his head was lightly bound in a turban of some flimsy material, and a loose robe of crimson silk hung from his shoulders, gathered together with a cord about the waist. As he advanced, Henley observed that the bones of his cheeks were high and prominent, and the eyes buried so deep beneath their projecting brows and skull that he was at a loss to account for the strange sense of power which he felt to be lodged in so small a space. "'This is Ah Ben, Mr. Henley, of whom I have spoken,' said Dorothy, rising. The old man extended his hand and bowed most courteously. He hoped that they had had a pleasant drive from the station, and then took his seat beside the fire. Paul was dumbfounded. Probably he was expected to know all about the man, and he had only just decided that he had been dead for a century. How could he so have misinterpreted what he had heard? Ah Ben stretched his long bony fingers to the fire and observed that the nights were beginning to grow quite cold. "'Yes,' said Henley. "'I had hardly expected to find the season so far advanced in your southern home.' "'Our altitude more than amends for our latitude,' answered the old man, and then, taking a pair of massive tongs from the corner of the mantel, he stirred the balsam logs into a fierce blaze, starting a myriad of sparks in their flight up the chimney. Dorothy was looking above, and Paul, following the direction of her eyes, observed a model of Father Time reclining upon a shelf near the ceiling. The figure's scythe was broken, his limbs were in shackles, and his body covered with chains. It was an original conception, and Henley could not help asking if time had really been checked in his onward march at Gear House. "'Ah,' said Dorothy, "'that is a symbol of a great truth, but I am not surprised at your asking.' Then, turning to the old man, added, "'Mr. Henley has not yet been shown to his room, and I am sure he would like to see it. It is the West Chamber.' "'True,' said Ah Ben, rising and taking a candle from the mantel, which he lighted with a firebrand. "'If Mr. Henley will follow me, I shall take pleasure in pointing it out to him.' Paul followed the elder man up the black stairs, through devious passages, 
and past doors with pictured panels until he began to wonder if he could ever find his way back again. At last they stopped before a rough door, hung with massive hinges stretching halfway across it, discolored with rust, and looking as if they had not been moved in an age, and which creaked dismally as Ah Ben entered. "'This will be your room,' he said, bowing courteously, and placing the candle upon the table near the chimney. He then reminded Henley that their evening meal would soon be ready. "'If there is anything further which you will need, pray let me know,' he added, and then retired. "'I should like my luggage,' said Paul, having left it below, with the exception of a small satchel. "'It shall be sent to you at once.' the old man answered as he walked slowly away. Left to himself, Henley looked around with curiosity. Every comfort had been provided, even to an armchair and writing-table by the fire. But the room, as well as its furnishing, was old and quaint and rapidly going to decay. Everything he saw related to a past period of existence. The window was high and deep-set in the wall. There was a bench under it, upon which one was obliged to climb to obtain a view of the country, and Henley pulled himself up into the sill to look out. The landscape presented an unbroken panorama of forest. No farming land was visible, and the distant mountains closed in the skyline, and all bathed in the soft light of the moon made a picture of extreme beauty and loneliness, a solid wilderness shut in from the busy world without. There was a musty smell, as if the room had not been used in years, and he lifted the sash. The rich perfume of fur and balsam was wafted in, displacing the disagreeable odor. The bed was a high four-poster, and there were steps for climbing into it, on examination, it was discovered to be built into the room with heavy timbers, and framed solidly with the house itself. A few faded rugs were scattered about the worm-eaten floor, and in every direction the woodwork was rough and unpainted, though massive enough for a fortress. Above the washstand was a strange picture, painted upon a fragment of coarse blanket, which had been stretched upon the wall. It depicted the setting sun with red and gold rays and a blue mountain in the distance. Around the entire scene in a semicircle was the word illusion, singularly wrought into the shafts of light and undecipherable without the closest scrutiny. The figure of an old man in the foreground was contemplating the scene. It was a crude piece of work, but impressive. There was a large mahogany cabinet, mounted with brass, but its double doors were locked and its drawers immovable. Beside the bed was a worm-eaten door, and in idle curiosity Paul tried the handle. It opened easily, revealing a spacious closet with hooks and shelves. Throwing the small satchel he had brought up with him upon the floor within, it struck something, 
but the closet was too dark for him to see what. So, taking the candle, he made an examination. In the farthest corner was a handrail, guarding a closed scuttle, in which was inserted a heavy iron ring. Henley took hold of the ring, and with some effort succeeded in opening the scuttle. Looking down, he found to his surprise that it communicated with the rough stairway leading below. He peered into the darkness, but could discern nothing save the steps, which seemed to go all the way to the cellar, and were just wide enough to admit of a human body. He then removed his belongings back into the room, shut down the scuttle, and closed the door. As there was no fastening, he wedged a chair between the knob and the floor, in such a manner that it could not be opened from within. He then threw himself upon the bed, wondering what would be the outcome of his unlawful enterprise, and while inhaling the tonic air of hill and forest, half wished he were well away from this uncanny house and its eccentric inmates. And yet, despite the mystery which enshrouded it, there was a charm, a fascination he could not deny. It was the dreamlike unreality of his surroundings, unreal because different from all that he had ever known. Should he suddenly find himself a dozen miles removed, he felt certain that he would straightway return. The musty smell had disappeared, and as the room was getting cold, Paul got up and closed the window. At the moment he had done so, there was a low knock at the door. He replied by a summons to enter, but there was no answer. The knock was repeated, and again Paul shouted, "'Come in!' But as before, there was no response. He now went to the door and opened it, and found a servant standing outside with his luggage. "'Why did you not come in?' Paul inquired. But the man did not answer. He simply entered and placed the bags upon the floor. Henley now asked him another question, but the fellow did not even look at him, and left the room without saying a word. Suddenly Paul remembered that he had seen him before. It was the dumb man who had met them on their arrival. It was the only servant he had seen. Could it be possible that these people kept no other? When Henley had completed his toilet, he blew out the candle and then groped his way down to the hall, where he found Miss Guir and Ah Ben awaiting him. The girl came forward to greet her guest and to reveal her presence, the fire having died away and the hanging lamp affording but a dull, copperish glow, barely sufficient to indicate the furniture and outlines of the room. Dorothy was radiant, but peculiarly so. She was unlike the girls to whom he was accustomed in the city. Moreover, her manner was more quiet, more earnest and dignified than theirs. She looked more charming than ever in a white gown, while her burnished hair was held in place by a tall Spanish comb and decorated with a flower. To be sure, the details of her costume were only suggested in the vague, uncertain light, but her pose and manner were unusually impressive. 
"'I hope you will not think that all Virginians are as inhospitable as we appear to be, Mr. Henley,' she exclaimed, with a graciousness that was quite bewitching. "'I'm sure,' said Henley, "'that I have never been treated with greater consideration by anyone. My room is simply perfect.' "'In its way, yes, but its way is that of a century past.' But what I was referring to in the matter of special negligence was the time we have kept you from food. "'Do you know,' Paul replied, "'that I have been so absorbed with the many strange things I have seen since my arrival that I have scarcely had time to think of food.' "'But I told you that you would be expected to have a good appetite.' "'And I have. In fact, when I think of it, I am ravenous.' he answered. "'Then follow me,' she said, leading the way toward a heavily curtained door upon the right. They passed into a narrow passage, and then, turning to the left, entered a softly lighted room. Paul was amazed at the sight that met his eyes. A round table, set for two, loaded with flowers, cut glass, and silver, and lighted with wax candles grouped under a large central shade of yellow silk, with a deep fringe of the same material. The distant parts of the room were in comparative shadow, forming a proper setting for the soft candlelight in the center. Evidently no one else was expected, and Dorothy, taking her seat upon one side of the cloth, requested Paul to sit opposite. "'And will not Aben be with us?' inquired Henley, glancing around to see if the old man were not coming. "'I'm afraid not,' replied Dorothy. "'He rarely dines at this hour.' If Mr. Henley had been told of the reception awaiting him at Gear House before leaving New York, he would doubtless have considered it a hoax. As it was, he was astounded. The odd character of the house and its inmates had already given him much ground for thought, even amazement. But to suddenly find himself face to face, tête-à-tête -tête with a bewitching girl, at a gorgeous dinner-table, laid for them only, was a condition of things calculated to turn any ordinary man's head. Never for an instant had the girl given the slightest intimation of why he, or, rather, the original Henley, had been wanted. And every effort to gain a clue of his business was thwarted, sometimes, it seemed, intentionally. The table was deftly waited upon by the same dumb man, who was a man-of-all-work and marvelous capacity. But his orders were invariably given by signals. Paul wondered if he were mistaken, could it be another servant with the same affliction? But that seemed incredible. Miss Gear's eloquent face, her wonderful hair and eyes, doubtless interfered with Paul in the full enjoyment of his meal. In fact, he was bewildered, dazed. He could neither account for the situation or the growing beauty of the girl. Was it the candlelight that had proved so becoming? But there was another matter that disturbed him, perhaps quite as much as this. It was the fact that Dorothy would not eat. Scarcely a mouthful of food passed her lips, 
although the dishes were of the daintiest, and she barely tasted many which she recommended heartily to him. Was she ill, or was it not the usual hour for her evening meal? Manlike, Henley was distressed for anything not endowed with a hearty appetite, and after the long cool drive he was sure she ought to be hungry. When he ventured to allude to the fact, and to remark that neither she nor Ah Ben ate like country people, the girl only smiled and declared that they both ate quite enough for their health, although she would never undertake to judge for others. With this he had to be satisfied. From time to time Paul's eyes would wander around the table, and from its dainty dishes and exquisite flowers return to their true lodestone, his hostess. In fact, the girl possessed a mesmeric charm for him, which had grown with marvelous rapidity since his arrival. "'It is all wonderfully beautiful,' he said, looking straight into Dorothy's eyes. "'I'm so glad you like it,' she answered, smiling. "'But you're not eating like a very hungry man.' She was helping his plate to a salad of cresses, to which she was adding an extra spoonful of dressing. "'I think you will find this quite the correct thing,' she added, pushing the plate toward him. "'Everything is much more than perfect,' answered Paul. "'In fact, I am not accustomed—' But he checked himself suddenly. How did he know what the real Henley was accustomed to? Possibly he was a millionaire, while he, Paul, was not. Whate'er she was doing, in every pose, Miss Guir was a picture, a quaint, unusual picture, to be sure, but nevertheless a picture. In helping the fruit which was brought on after dinner, her white hands, ablaze with precious stones, shone to peculiar advantage. And when she poured out the coffee that followed, Paul wished for his Kodak, for he had seen nowhere, save in old-fashioned engravings, just such a picture as she made. But it became Miss Gear's turn to be critical. "'Do you know what I think?' she said, looking him full in the face, and without a suspicion of embarrassment. "'About what?' She bent toward him with her elbows on the table, her chin resting upon her clasped hands. "'I think that if you had a flower in your buttonhole, you wouldn't mind it now, would you, if I were to give you one?' And then, without either smile or apology, she took the chrysanthemum from her hair and tossed it over to Paul. There was something so odd and yet so deeply earnest in the way the thing was done that Henley accepted the favor as he might have accepted a command from royalty than as a flirtatious banter from a girl. He placed the flower in his buttonhole without the faintest desire to respond with one of those frivolous speeches he would have used under most similar circumstances. Before the meal was finished, Ah Ben entered the room and poured himself a cup of coffee, which he drank without sitting down. It was all that he took. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline